I'm Lisa Hamilton from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and this is CaseyCast. My guest today, Kathleen Enright, is president and CEO of a philanthropic serving organization called the Council on Foundations. The Council, a longtime Casey partner, is best described by its mission, which is to provide opportunities, talent, and tools to philanthropies so that they can expand their capacity to advance the greater good. Prior to joining the Council earlier this year, Enright served for 17 years as the President and CEO of Grantmakers for Effective Organizations. She also speaks and writes regularly on issues of nonprofit and grantmaker effectiveness to executives across the nation. Kathleen, welcome to CaseyCast. Thanks so much, Lisa. It's great to be here. So to start, why don't we talk about what led you to a career in philanthropy? Few people have a straight line into this profession. Why don't you tell us how you got started in philanthropy? I actually knew that I wanted to be in the nonprofit sector as early as junior year in college. So mine was a much more direct path than most. Um, I had a, a internship here in Washington, D.C. with this amazing advocacy organization. It was working for runaway and homeless kids. And I just saw the power and potential of an organization like this to do incredible good. It was really the uh, embodiment of that Margaret Mead quote, you know, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world because indeed it's the only thing that ever has. Uh, And so I just I was sparked up and I realized that that's where I wanted to be. So I uh, from there on, I've been working in the nonprofit sector And uh, soon after graduate school, found my way to philanthropy. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you had a straight route. Mine was more circuitous, but uh, it is a wonderful um, area to be in, to be able to be in the business of doing good. So, and you've been doing it for a long time. Almost everyone's uh, path is more crooked than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, when we talk about philanthropy, um, not many people are quite sure what exactly it means. So first I want to ask you, what does philanthropy mean to you? How do you define it? Is it just about money? You know, absolutely not. I mean, there are so many ways to give. Uh, you can give your your money, of course, uh, but you can give any part of yourself, your time, your talent. Um, so I, I have a very open definition of philanthropy. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that more people uh, feel that way as well. Um, our, our communities are enriched every single day by the multitude of ways that people give. Hmm. Um, but you often um, work today with a certain kind of giver. Um, institutional foundations, talk about the Council on Foundations and who you represent and what kinds of organizations they are. Yes, absolutely. The council uh, does principally work with those who have formalized their giving through an institution like the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And so these groups are um, uh, donors. Oftentimes they're individual donors or folks who have made their money through private industry. Uh, Sometimes they have come about in other ways, like uh, um, uh, some are health conversion foundations, meaning a Uh, a a nonprofit hospital that has been privatized. Uh, And so they've hired staff and they have decided that they're going to they're going to become sophisticated about the way that they're giving away their money. And so we try to help them find peers and partners and get get even more sophisticated more quickly. Any sense of the number of foundations in the country? (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, there are uh, about 8000 staffed foundations in the country at any given time. 
Um, there are a lot more folks out there doing philanthropy mm -hmm. uh, through donor advised funds, by putting money into their church plate every Sunday, um, by giving through other online vehicles. So uh, nearly everyone is a, is a philanthropist. Mm. Tell us what misconceptions people have about the field of philanthropy. I mean, I think they have misconceptions <laughs> big and small. Um, you know, I think one of the misconceptions overall is that um, philanthropy is just for elite, uh, uber-wealthy folks, and that's just not at all the case. Philanthropy is embedded in the DNA of our country. Um, it has been with us since the very dawning um, of the United States. In fact, one of the council's board members told me that just the most moving story about her family's history with philanthropy. Her name is Stephanie Bell Rose, and I know <laughs> Stephanie. You know Stephanie, <laughs> um, and she she she's in philanthropy. She runs the TIAA Institute, mm -hmm. and um, she talked about her great great grandfather who back um, in the 1800s, right after the Civil War, gave him his freedom from slavery, donated the land to found the uh, St. Thomas AME Zion Church in North Carolina. So he became a philanthropist right after he got his freedom. Wow. And from there, his family has been philanthropists ever since. So I think a misconception about philanthropy is that it's for really wealthy folks, that it's... Um, out of reach for everyday givers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a myth I'd like to bust. That's great. I, I was um, interviewed recently about who inspires me in philanthropy. And I know that um, Osceola McCarty, the um, wash woman in Mississippi who saved her resources and gave a scholarship at the University of Mississippi. And um, as you said, it's for an opportunity for everybody to give in lots of different ways. So I'm, I'm glad you are a proponent of a broad definition of philanthropy. Absolutely. Can be one. Great, great. Um, well, I'm not sure people always understand the differences between philanthropy and charity and nonprofits. Could you talk about how these are similar and maybe some of the ways that they might be different? You know, philanthropy is is kind of the work of foundations and the act of giving either money or time. And so, um, you know, that that uh, is often the word that folks use. It's sort of a, a fancy word. You could just call it giving. <laughs> um, and then charity and nonprofits are the institutions that often receive that kind of money. Mm. Um, so they're set up in society to... Um, uh, in service of the of the public good or the greater good. Great. Thank you for that uh, differentiation. So you manage a philanthropy network. You try to bring foundations together so they can learn from one another and, and implement best practices. What do you find is the value of having this kind of philanthropic community? What What can a network do compared to just a single foundation, for example? Oh, yeah. You know, Lisa... The earliest philanthropists understood that they were working on issues that none of them could solve alone. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they created groups like the council. They wanted to come together because they were trying to do really hard work. You know, Warren Buffett very famously said when he gave his initial gifts, gift to the Gates Foundation, that these are issues that have already defied both intellect and money. Mm. And so, you know, solving poverty working on uh, childhood obesity, all of these things are harder than um, the typical work that a, that a corporate enterprise does. And so um, uh, creating the spaces and the places 
where institutions can share what they're learning, where they can come together, where they can combine their resources, where they can add to one another's strategy um, is going to help us make faster progress on these really important societal issues. Yeah, I think that's so important. And you led for a long time an organization that was focused on grantmaker effectiveness. Um, I imagine part of what can happen when you bring organizations together is that they learn how to do their work better, not just how the strategy of problem solving works, but how the business of giving could be better. Say more about um, being an effective philanthropy, what that entails. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How much time do we have left? (laughs) Yeah, It's um, more complicated than people imagine. It seems um, odd whenever I say that, you know, giving away money is hard, but the challenges are tough and the business of philanthropy is tough. Giving away money well is incredibly hard. And and those who take it seriously um, feel the burden of that. Mm-hmm. They feel the burden of um, of wanting to do it well. Because when you think about it, um, the risk is really borne by the people that you're serving. And if you give the if you give the money away um, to ill effect, mm-hmm. if you aren't actually achieving what you set out to achieve, it's not the foundation that suffers. Right. It's the it's people. The mission. It's the mission that suffers. Mm-hmm. It's the kids uh, who aren't served well. Uh, it's the community who does not get the effect. And so, um, I mean, I think that the people inside foundations who are very serious and trying to operate with the highest integrity um, bear that on their shoulders. Um, so when I talk, when when you ask me about what it takes to do philanthropy well, um, there's a whole host of things. But um, I think at the core, it's being guided by values. And some of those values are about listening really hard and and connecting um, with those closest to the problems that you're trying to solve um, and ensuring that um, that you're operating with humility <laughs> and, that, and that you are um, making the adjustments necessary over time when you are um, discovering um, uh, that your initial inclinations are not... Maybe not be right. <laughs> yes, maybe right. are not... Uh, getting where, getting you where you thought they were going to get you. Yeah. When um, we started talking this afternoon, one of the topics that came up was racial equity, and um, it's an issue that Casey has been grappling with, and will continue to grapple with for a long time. But I see the field grappling with as well. Is there any insight you have into how grant makers are trying to be effective on complicated issues like racial equity? Oh yes, ma'am. And actually, that's one of the things that is the absolutely most core to effectiveness. Mm. I mean, when you think about, um, uh, you know, kind of any of the um, of the most basic issues that foundations are trying to work on, um, education, health, uh, fair housing, um, economic equality, um, if you look at those disaggregated by race, you see... Um, you see how how big those gaps are, how big those differences are. So if you are not paying attention to your strategies based on race, then you're not being the most effective. Well, thank you for that um, perspective, Kathleen, on uh, how we can all think about being more effective in our work, particularly around racial equity. Well, we know that there are lots of strengths in today's philanthropic landscape. What are we doing well in philanthropy? 
Yeah. One of the evolutions that I've seen and I'm really excited about is that more foundations are using all of the assets at their disposal. I I think in decades past, it was more typical for foundations to focus merely on their grant-making assets and that 5% that we had at our disposal to give out. And I'm seeing more and more foundations look holistically at all that we can bring to bear to advance our missions. Uh, we're using our voices uh-huh. more effectively. Uh, we're communicating. You're doing this podcast. That's so exciting. <laughs> right. um, you know, we're collaborating. We're aligning our strategies and resources with other foundations. Uh, we're lifting um, up advocacy and lobbying and policy change when we think that that is the best way to affect change. It's exciting to see more foundations think about the role they can play in policy and not just in programs. I think to your point, there are many more foundations who are realizing that's an appropriate and acceptable tool that they can use to advance their mission. Absolutely. I mean, there are multiple pathways to grow your impact. Mm -hmm. And I think in the past, we always just looked at the programmatic pathway, but you can try to um, scale impact by thinking about changing a policy or by um, growing an idea. Um, uh, there's, there, there are multiple ways. But additionally, many are deploying the 95% of their endowment resources in yes. different ways. <laughs> I'm on a group with other philanthropic leaders around uh, the impact U.S. Investing. Impact Investing yes. Alliance. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's very exciting. I mean, these are um, uh, frontier initiatives um, where where we are um, thinking through how we in totality can have a broader impact on on the world Mm -hmm. and and not just stay in what we we, um, thought of as our old lanes, you know, the the lanes that we saw as as where we should be. Could you say more about impact investing just for listeners who may not know what that is or how it works, just so that people understand the difference between the 5% yeah, we were talking about sure. and the 95%. That's a little bit of insider speak. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah. Um, so in, in a lot of um, endowed grant-making foundations, they spend out 5% of their assets every year in grants. And so that's where all the programmatic um, work typically happens. But then the rest of the money is invested. And um, what first started happening is that those invested assets were screened for things that maybe folks didn't want to have in their investments. And so they were screened positively or negatively, meaning uh, things were taken out. Um, and there are um, terrific efforts like um, the uh, the divest invest, <laughs> um, you know, where they're divesting from things like fossil fuels and investing in things like clean energy. Um, so, you know, depending on what the uh, institution's missions are, there are other efforts like um, trying to diversify asset managers. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, ABFI, um, which uh, was formerly known as the uh, Association of Black Foundation Executives, they're now just known as ABFI, but for those who don't know the field very well, I thought I would spell that out. Um, they're encouraging the diversification of um, the investment managers, so more women and people of color who are managing the money. Um, so that's another kind of uh, that's that's another way that people are trying to uh, change the game there, um, but also using that ninety five percent of resources to get multiple returns, so social returns as well as economic returns. So it could be investing in uh, low income housing that also produces some profits. Um, so there's there's a, a multitude of of vehicles for impact investing, but that's a small enough snapshot that gives people enough of an impression. Thank you. Thank you. And and I didn't know if there were other ways that you saw uh, the field 
um, being effective that you wanted to highlight? Yeah. And, you know, one that I think is so um, it's it's like a fundamental shift that will be will catalyze a lot, a lot of other shifts, which is finding ways to engage and incorporate those with lived experience on the issues and causes that we're trying to affect by seeking their feedback, by hiring them into our staffs, by recruiting them onto our boards. Um, You know, this is, there is nothing like the felt or lived experience of whatever you're working on, (laughs) Um, poverty, you know, uh, um, having been a refugee or an immigrant, any of these sorts of things to enable you to make better decisions about the work. Right. We're um, all limited by our own experiences. And I think that is um, one of the ways we can be most effective is to bring the, the insights and perspectives of others into our decision making. Absolutely. And, and, and the research proves that out. <laughs> the research proves out that, mm-hmm. you know, um, diversifying the rooms where decisions are made um, improves the decision making. Right. So. Um, so, you know, I think that that is that all of these are increasing the sophistication of our sector and of the individual organizations that make up our sector. And that is only going to be to the good of, you know, of uh, the business of the of world. Good. Yes, of, of the business, business of good. good. I like that. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, um, uh, let's shift then to talk about what isn't working. What do you think are some of the major challenges that are slowing us down in philanthropy? Well, you know, I, I guess I'll say that this is an industry. You know, you mentioned that lots of people come into this work, you know, through the side door or um, uh, through a, um, a less than typical path. Um, but one thing that frustrates me is that, you know, people are making unforced errors. There are things that are known about how to do philanthropy well. And many have been doing this work for decades Books have been written about this work. Um, We've made the mistakes. Let's not make them again. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's exactly it. And so if we just are willing to show a little humility mm-hmm. and a little curiosity mm-hmm. about um, about what has happened and about how we can do the work better and how the work is already being done better, right. um, then we can spend these precious um, public resources. These are resources that are tax advantaged and therefore... They, um, you know, we have a, uh, um, a, a trust. We are there, you know, we are, we are, stewards. we are stewards of a public trust. We can spend them better uh, if we're willing to do that. So groups like the council and our colleagues and other philanthropy serving organizations will do our best to make those lessons, you know, more accessible, more digestible, more actionable. Uh, but those making philanthropic choices have got to show that curiosity and that humility right. to want to learn. Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, it's easy to be successful in one realm of um, life mm-hmm. and believe that the same things that make you successful in business are the same same skills or attributes that can make you successful in philanthropy or could lead to problem solving on social issues. And I see you nodding and um, that's not always true. There isn't an app for poverty. (laughs) What's that book? Um, What got you here isn't going to get you there. I mean, it's almost entirely true that the same skill sets that are going to make you successful in name the field are not. I mean, it could be academia, it could be government, it could be whatever the field is, or it could be 
software development um, <laughs> are not going to be the same skills that are going to make you a successful philanthropist. So those really smart people can learn and pivot, though. I know I they can. Yeah. And, and, and other philanthropies like mm-hmm. Casey and others um, work hard to try to share our lessons with others. We write more than I think people could ever read mm-hmm. in terms of trying to share the mistakes that we've made or the successes that we've had and what's contributed yeah. to them. And so um, to your point, I think the council is a fabulous uh, intermediary to help all of us in the field yeah. learn from one another in in uh faster, more powerful ways. Right. The one other thing that I have to say, because it is, it's one of the most frustrating things um, along those same lines, that this field does not seem to um, progress as quickly as the evidence and the data <laughs> would seem to um, seem to permit, suggest or permit, right. um, which is that nonprofits have been pleading for decades for the kinds of support that they need to be successful. Which is that they need flexible dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, they um, have been in this starvation cycle where they can't fund the things that they need to be high performing. And they're kind of on this um, treadmill, barely keeping up all of the time. And some of this is because government money comes with such low overheads and so many restrictions. And that is very clearly part of the problem, a big part of the problem. Um, and I personally worked on this challenge for 17 years. And, mm-hmm. um, and I can say that I... I, I can't say that I understand the rationale, to be mm. frank, because, you know, the, the business people who create these foundations clearly understand the expenses necessary to run um, a top rate enterprise. Mm-hmm. Of course they do. And so I'm just not sure why they would restrict or cherry pick the expenses that they are willing to pay for when attempting to fund a top rate organization that's doing work that's much harder than the typical for profit. You know, um Foundations like Casey often support um, not just the programmatic work of an organization, but also lots of capacity building. So we realize that in order for our organizations to deliver results, they've got to be strong organizations. And so we provide investments that help them get better on data or help them get better on communications or help them get better on racial equity. It seems like um, by increasing the overhead, it contributes to their ability to fund their own or manage their own um, capacity building in some ways. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, I I ran an organization was that was completely committed to all of those things. You know, capacity building, evaluation, all of that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, in in my perfect world, the organizations would be getting the flexible dollars they need to self-support whatever kind of capacities that they that they need in order to to be high performing. Um, you know, there's the the counter argument that nonprofits are so conditioned culturally to underfund that stuff mm-hmm. that foundations need to uh, provide those incentives. That mm-hmm. is true. So we do need we do need a shift that will take some time um, uh, because um, you know, because nonprofits have been in a system that's broken for too long. Mm-hmm. So we need, we do need to shift uh, the system mm-hmm. and then to have them believe that the system has been shifted <laughs> in order for it to be real. Gotcha. 
Well, I, I thank you for that perspective, both the um, celebration of the things that we seem to be doing well in philanthropy and the call to action and the challenge for us to continue to push ourselves um, to do more. Um, you started talking about um, this question of uh, engagement, and I want to explore that a little more. Um, in modern America, wealthy individuals can make an undemocratic impact through philanthropy. What can we do to ensure that the sector is engaging in more meaningful ways with the communities and people that we are seeking to help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, several of that's that's one of the major arguments of some of philanthropy's critics right now um, is that uh, philanthropy's you know being done by plutocrats, uh, and um, it is a it is a form of speech. You know, philanthropy is a form of speech. You are, you know, where you give your money and how and how it is given. Um, it's a form of, of democratic voice. And so, you know, to my mind, you know, the more that we can open up and enlarge who has access uh, to, to, to being a philanthropist uh, in first order, the more democratic it becomes. So I'm concerned about the fact that tax reform um, cut off that ability to some extent, mm -hmm. because when um, uh, when we... Uh, reduce the number of people who itemize their taxes um, by so much. Uh, so many fewer people receive any sort of benefit from uh, from giving to uh, to nonprofits, and therefore it really is the higher income folks who are getting the most the most tax benefits. And so, you know, what the council will be working hard to try to uh, create a broader benefit for more folks and for more people with more, more regular incomes uh, mm -hmm. to, you know, to to make philanthropy more democratic. So additionally, you know, we said that you need to stay connected to those who are uh, who are um, affected by the issues that you're working on. Some of the best regarded organizations in our sector have been calling out for that kind of connectivity for years and years. Some people talk about it as getting proximate. You know, others have written publications called Do Nothing About Me Without Me. You know, there's uh, people are talking about feedback loops. Um, participatory so, research. Participatory research. Right. I mean, there's, you can't talk, I mean, folks are talking about it in so many different ways. Um, so not only do you need to ask for, but then you have to, have to actually take and incorporate and make real uh, the feedback that you're seeking. And one of the things when we are doing our work is the um, balance you have. You have paid staff that you have charged with helping to figure out um, how to make investments on our behalf, but then you know how important it is to engage communities. And so there is a lot of work that has to be done to help your staff understand what their role is in um, both making grant-making decisions, but also engaging communities mm -hmm. uh, in um, informing uh, and um, uh, providing uh, support for those those kinds of decisions. So there, there is a, a, a dance to be done uh, in trying to manage the, both aid staff and community members that you want to have um, voice in what you're doing. But Lisa, you sound like you've already got that balance. You know, you're, you're understanding that balance and you're talking about it in a really nice way. I think where it goes a little bit um, uh, askew is when um, foundations charge their staff with being the expert mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because then they think they have to have the answers. Right. 
And that's that's terrible for them. You know, those poor foundation staff that think that they have to have the answers and then present it, you know, in 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 a whole little package to their foundation leadership. Um, and then, of course, they're going to get resistance from the nonprofits they fund and from the communities that they serve because, you know, again, they they weren't consulted. And so um, don't I don't want to pretend that we have it all figured out. We're practicing. <laughs> Philanthropy is a practice. Of course. Uh, not absolutely. a performance. So we are every day trying to do that balance. But it, there is a, I think people often come to philanthropy imagining that their role is to um, have an expert answer. They are often people who are accomplished in the fields that we work in and uh, helping them build new muscles to be rather engaging, you know, to, to be folks who engage community and our listeners mm-hmm. um, and not just deciders is uh, really a, um, a new muscle that you have to build for folks in philanthropy. As you said, it can be a black box. People aren't always sure what it means when you come into philanthropy, but I think it can be eye-opening to realize no, my job is often really to to reveal the uh, insights and solutions that um, those we seek to serve have. Um, so that, I think you're right. That's a really important part of our practice. We have to get much, much better at. And we can also hire for it, though. And we can hire That's people true. in who are yeah. already good at that, mm-hmm. um, because that is it's a key skill. Yeah, or who have lived experience. It, doesn't have to be outside inside mm-hmm, situation. Right. Definitely, I think that's great. Um, let me shift and ask you: What's one area that you'd like to see philanthropy taking on a larger role so we can have a greater impact? It feels like philanthropy is a part of so many fields, but are there some spaces where you think we are a bit absent? Yeah, well, absent is probably not the right word. Um, but when I think about you know the fact that philanthropy exists because some individuals have resources that far exceed their needs. Um, while others are struggling and suffering, you know, philanthropy, um, I think philanthropy would be well served to explore how we can create conditions for broader economic prosperity for all. Um, my last question, do we have a new generation ready to take on the helm of philanthropy? I don't think folks imagine young people are uh, as often leaders in philanthropy, but I know your organization does lots of work to try to build a talent pipeline into philanthropy. What does it look like? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, this, you know, there, there are incredibly values-driven generations, um, you know, coming up. Uh and I've been so excited to see how many um, uh, leaders in philanthropy have been coming from within the field. You're one of them, Lisa, <laughs> which is so exciting, um, you know, because this is an industry, as I've said, and people, there are skills that that you need. There's context. There's deep learning um, that helps you be a more successful leader uh, in this work. And so... It's exciting to me that people are finding career paths in philanthropy, that they're sticking to it, that we're creating cultures where um, more folks uh, are wanting to stick in in our sector. And I'm hoping that um, that will continue to be the case, particularly for people of color. There was a very um, disturbing report several years ago that AbbVie produced uh, called Exit Interviews, um, which was about how... Um, uh, Black people were leaving foundations at an incredibly rapid rate because the cultures were not working for them. Um, And so 
I, I, that has not been repeated recently, but but the council cares very much about diversity in the sector. We have a Career Pathways program that is explicitly about getting folks who are mid-career into the C-suite and philanthropy, uh, people from all sorts of uh, the dimensions of diversity, including racial diversity, but also people who might come from a rural background or people who um, come from low socioeconomic status or what have you. And so um, we're very excited because those cohorts fill up very quickly. And uh, there's a lot of success of people who have been in career pathways who are now in CEO roles in philanthropy. That's fantastic. So it seems like we are getting ready and that there is an energetic young crop of uh, leaders ready to step into leadership. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that there is... Uh, plenty of leadership to be had uh, for the nonprofit sector and for philanthropy. Uh, and I think they're ready, they're they're willing, and we just need to let them loose. That is so exciting. Well, Kathleen, it has just been phenomenal to have this conversation with you to hear what you see is happening in philanthropy, both the opportunities that lie ahead of us and some of the challenges that we need to be mindful of so we can be as effective as we can in doing this business of doing good. Thank you so much for joining me on CaseyCast today. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. And thank you to everyone listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, go to Apple Podcasts to rate the show or share your feedback on Twitter using the KCCast hashtag. As always, more information on KCCast, this interview, and the Annie E. Casey Foundation's work is available at aecf.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future. <laughs>